This is week two of our new series called Imperishable, where we're looking at this idea of living through Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and how does that make us respond. In last week's text, Peter pronounced a blessing upon those in churches across Asia Minor who believed in Christ without seeing him and held fast to their faith despite persecution and rejection. Now we move from a description of the benefits of faith to the command to live in a way that reflects the salvation that they have been given through Christ's resurrection. Peter calls them to a holy life. He calls them to abandon their old ways, that if we are truly living a life that is reflecting a living God, then we have to abandon the things that are dead. We have to abandon the old, empty ways of our previous life. A holy life, in other words. And so Peter calls the church, he, and he offers to the church a vision of what it looks like to be the people of God. And so we look this week not at a living hope, but we move now to a living word. And we read that in Isaiah 40, and we read it again here as Peter quotes it, that the living and enduring word of God has transformed these people in Asia Minor. But there are two commands mainly that Peter gives them and how they should reflect their salvation to the community around them. And he's not just talking about the community in which they live, the community of believers, but reflecting their resurrection, reflecting the living word of God to the community at large around them. Because the first thing he says is that you should practice your time here, your temporary uh, residence here in reverence. Reverence is uh, a Greek word. It sort of means um, to be in fear of something. It's actually the Greek word phobos, where we get the word phobia from. So living in fear, but it's not really what we're talking about. We're not wanting to be scared. We're not wanting to be scared of the judgment of God anymore. We're actually, it means something more than fear. It means a, a respect of God. Peter is commanding Christian believers that an intimacy with God should lead us to respect and awe, not to fear God. If we live in fear of judgment, that is the old way of life. If you've been born anew, if you have been truly redeemed, if you are in a living relationship with a living God, it's not about fear of judgment any longer. God will judge all of us according to our deeds, as Peter has said, according to each one's work. But that's not the way we're called to live in spite of that, in light of that. Sometimes our unhealthy response to being so close to God is one of fear. That living so intimately with God, having this uh, uh, intimate relationship with him can lead us to conclusions that are not right. That we should live with, with fear that we're going to mess up, with a fear of judgment, fear of punishment, fear that if we do this one thing wrong, that everything is gone for good. And Peter says, this is, this is the old way of life. If your judgment is coming from God, then you're all set because he, you now call 
your father. Your father's going to judge you, but it's going to be in a different way. It's going to be with one of love. It's going to be one of caring and compassion and mercy, rather of one of justice, the things that you deserve to do. But let's talk about this phrase, the time of your temporary residence here. It's kind of a mouthful. It means while you're on this journey, while you are a pilgrim. It literally means in the Greek, the time of your sojourn, the time of your movement, the time of your travel. Because see, this place that we are in is not our home. And this is the way that this always is preached. But actually this word came to mean, it was a metaphor for a Christian's life here on earth. It was literally describing the act of being in a foreign country without citizenship. That Peter is not specifically talking about, oh yeah, well one day you'll be in heaven and that's fine. This isn't your home, so live in a different way as if you're transient, if you're moving from one place to another. Peter is saying, no, you're literally living in a place where you don't belong, where you don't feel welcome, where you are oppressed, where the culture around you is trying to dictate how you live. And that is causing stress. It's causing um, a problem in your lives because you are feeling like an exile. Imagine uh, traveling to Mexico and you lose your passport and you don't find out about it until you get back to the border. They won't let you back into your home. And the world around you is not the place where you belong because there are things that are different about the life in Mexico than your life here in America. And so you long to be in a place, in a community that you call your own. And you could build a new house and you could build a new life there in Mexico, but you will always be a foreigner. You will always be an alien. You will not be a resident of that place. There is a community to which they belong, and inside that they feel comfort and they feel great. But Peter is saying, look at what you're doing as you live here as an alien in this city, in this culture. Strive to be respectful, not just of God, but of the world around you. Peter is definitely drawing attention to the immediate context of their lives. Look at where you are. The truth of God is going to follow people around like a light, and wherever that light is gathered, people will start to build their lives around that. Communities of Christ started to pop up all over the region because it was true, because we started to live in a way that was counter to the culture at the time. They were living among a foreign and hostile culture. And last week, I told you that the post-resurrection people of the New Testament, these people that Peter is writing to, that, that we get letters of Paul writing to, these churches all over the region, they're us as well. We're living in a post-resurrection church. And our culture and our society and our, our lives are built around this very idea that Jesus is post-resurrection. We are the same as these people. Our culture is a little bit different, obviously. But as we strive to live in a culture that does not represent who we are, as we strive to live in a culture that attempts to subvert everything that we believe in the truth of who God is, we must hold fast to that. 
And it's precisely their holiness. It's precisely, holiness is a word that means to be set apart. So it's, their, it's precisely the fact that they have set themselves apart from their culture, their divine separation from secular cultural values that makes them aliens in the eyes of that culture. You live in a different way. You believe in Jesus, so you really don't have anything to say in this matter. Well, you base your truth on the Bible. You base your truth on the word of God, so you don't really have anything to say in this secular space. So how often are we pushed out of society because our values are countercultural? Peter is trying to build a community. He's trying to make something that lasts. And he's trying to show the community that new life should cause us to live in a new way. That if you're living still in your old way, if you just tack on Jesus to your life, if you say, I have all of these things and I've built up this life and this identity of who I am, and now I've just added Jesus to that, you won't look any different. And the question will start to be, well, what does it mean to be a Christian then? What must I do? And if you read in Acts after Pentecost several times, as Peter and Paul and Barnabas, all of these men, Silas, take the word of God to the Greek community, what's the question that they ask? What must I do to be saved? What must I do? And so, Our question that we look at this, we continue to see what must I do to live in a new way? What must I do to show my salvation to the community around us? So Paul, Peter first says, you need to live in fear, in reverence of, in respect of God. Why? Because they were ransomed, Peter says. You were ransomed from your empty way of life that your ancestors inherited to you. We talked last week about the word inheritance, a gift given from someone who came before you. And the gift that God gives us in our salvation is an imperishable inheritance. And yet, here's Peter again talking about an inheritance that comes from our ancestors, our earthly ancestors, and he says, Wow, that was empty. If you want to live in that way, sure, they've given you, they've given you a way to live, but it is empty. It is perishing. It is not the right way for you to live. And it's interesting that he talks about the inheritance being perishable like silver and gold. We all want an inheritance. We all want that passed down, whatever was accrued from your family Your grandfathers and your fathers is given to you now, and someday I want to leave a legacy for my own children that they can have something of mine that reminds them of me. But Peter reminds us that even silver and gold are perishable. Even those things that we feel are precious, that we feel are worthy on this planet, they will will fade away but you were ransomed from your empty way of life by precious blood. 
like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb who is Christ. Now, they were ransomed, so that should beg the question, ransomed from what? And we already answered that. They were held in captivity by something, the bonds of sin. This is the former way of life. Slaves to sin and death, they were held there in this empty way. The sin and death was going to come for them. They could not pay their way free. And anything that they used, gold, silver, coins, work, it's all perishable. It all fades. It all corrupts. It all rusts. And therefore, they're unable to last or be accepted long term. And so what is Peter hoping for in this moment? What is Peter hoping is going to happen? If he can remind them of the permanence of of Jesus' blood, if he can remind them that they have been bought, if they have been ransomed from death with this cost, well, he's hoping for a permanence. He's hoping for a long-term solution. He's saying that even though our lives are transient, even though we are moving from place to place, even though We have no hold on life. Let's build something together that is lasting. And it, in fact, should be a desire to build something lasting that is a concern for all Christians, that we should not be trying to build things for ourselves. We should not be trying to uh, gratify our desires first, but be building and working together to build something that lasts over the long time. And I'm not talking about building bigger buildings. I'm not talking about having uh, a great children's program. What I'm talking about is planting a seed that is based on the truth of God's word. And we can plant things all day long. We can plant seeds that grow up and then wither in the next season. But unless our lives, unless our churches, unless our religion is founded on this truth, we will not be secure. A community is only as secure as what it's built around. So that's great. That leads us to a great conclusion because then we can start to say, okay, our community is built on the empty ways of man. It's built on the empty things that we've already inherited. It's built on the empty things of our inheritance from our ancestors, the things our father gave us the things that we hold so precious. We're gonna build a community on those things. It's only gonna be secure as things that fade. It's only gonna be secure as grass and flowers that wither from one season to the next. Whatever you built your life around before, it is gone. Your new life has called you to something else, to build a life around something that is continually renewing. A living word of God, one that does not fade, that does not corrupt or rust. And it's not just because we have new life, but because those things that we used to prop ourselves up with in this life are gone now. They fade, they disappear. And so then Peter enters into uh, a little bit of a sidetrack there in verses uh, 20 and 21 where he talks about Christ being foreknown and he's been given to you by God so that you would believe. And then he gets to his second point. And he says, if you wanna live in a way that reflects your salvation, if you wanna live as a community of believers that are going to be 
imperishable, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to love one another with a pure heart. So live in reverent fear of God. Respect him. Give him the proper respect and authority he needs. And then the second part is, in your community, love one another with a pure heart. Now, purifying our souls is directly related to obeying the truth. You can see there in verse 22. You have purified your souls by obeying the truth. Or we could say it the other way, obeying the truth has purified your souls. It's as simple as obeying the truth. It's as simple as longing for what is good and pure in life. And Peter says that the truth can only come from the imperishable word of God. You obeyed the truth, so you purified your souls, but this has come from the word that was proclaimed to you. He describes the word of God as an imperishable seed, one that is planted in the ground and continually renews itself, one that does not get corrupted, one that does not fade and wither in the hot summer sun. It is not swayed by the wind. It is not blown to and fro. It is a seed that once planted will grow and will never die or be uprooted. It's not Jesus himself. Notice how Peter is moving from Jesus has given you all of these things and done this so that you may believe the truth about the word of God, the word that God has spoken to you. This imperishable seed, it does not wither and fade. You have been born anew. And so we know that our lives are transformed. They are made new because this seed is imperishable. It is not going away. But how do we love each other earnestly? You've purified your souls. Peter says, okay, now it's time to love each other earnestly. Let's all just love each other, right? How does that work? It's not just a matter of saying, I love you, or trying to outserve one another, or um, trying to love more deeply. This one's, this one's tough. This one's tougher than that. In verse one of chapter two, he says, so get rid of all evil and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. I thought it was just a matter of loving each other more. I thought it was just a matter of having love in my heart and then I don't have to worry about all these things. Peter's taking it one step further. He's saying, if you want to love each other in the way that a community can be reflective of the salvation that you have received in Christ, you need to rid yourself of all of the bad things that you have in your heart, all of those evil desires, all of the lies and deceits that you tell yourself and one another, all the hypocrisy, the literal two-facedness of your lives, the envy and the jealousy and the slander and the words that you say about yourself and about each other and how you drag each other down in the mud just to make a point and make yourself feel better. <laughs> Mutual love is getting rid of all those things first. You wanna love better? 
Focus on ridding your heart of those evil things, of those desires that come from your old way of life. All of these things taken together, evil and deceit and slander and envy and hypocrisy, they are things that destroy a community. Communities can be built up in love and it can take years and years and years, but they can be destroyed in seconds by evil and deceit and slander and hypocrisy and envy. The command for mutual love is focused on community building rather than self-building. That if we truly love one another, we are looking for ways to build each other up. We're looking for ways to build community up. We're not looking for ways to make ourselves stronger. We're not looking for ways to make God stronger. Whoa, wait a second. Hold on now. I thought that loving God was the whole point of it. I thought that coming to God first and loving him was the way, Mm mm-hmm, yes, that's true. But Peter says, you cannot love God if you are not building up your community. If you're not building up the people around you, if you have not rid yourself of all of these evil, divisive things in your lives, you're not actually truly loving God. Because the thing that you are reaching for is just more self-gratifying things. I'm going to love God because that makes me look good. That secures my place in heaven. That secures everything that we need to have. And Peter's like, eh, don't worry about that. You can love God best by loving his community best. You can build up your relationship with Christ by building up your relationship with his community. A rising tide lifts all boats. And so if we rid ourselves of all evil and all malice and all those things that have held us back from loving God, we will show ourselves to be true believers. Taken together, they represent the kind of attitudes and actions in whose presence true community based on love is absolutely impossible. A community built on love cannot have these things in their presence and that they are therefore absent among those who have actually listened to the command to love one another. Peter says this is the only way to love God is to love one another. So in those little church taglines that we see, love God, love people, love God, love one another, they're pretty popular because it is the gospel itself. That's what we're called to do. But Peter's like, mm, let me switch that up a little bit for you. Love people, love God. That your true belief in God is going to be represented by loving his people. We cannot truly love God if we have these things against us. And so how does that make us live? Because Christians have put away divisive vices through their love of one another, they must now long for God's word with the same single-mindedness with which an infant yearns for the milk that alone will nourish it. We just talked about Beckett this morning. He is a hungry guy. He will not stop eating. 
That's all he wants. That's all he thinks about. Our pursuit of God's word must be the same thing. It must be the only thing that we desire, that we move toward. Because people that love God are going to love his people. And the only way that we can love his people is a pursuit of his unending and imperishable word. This is the empty way of life that we have been ransomed from. The desire to love ourselves first. The desire to love God and then keep that to ourselves. We cannot do one without the other. We must long for God's word. We must yearn for it. We must pursue God's imperishable word. Because this is the only thing that endures forever. We read that from Isaiah 40 this morning. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. And the grass withers and the flowers fall off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And these are his people too. That if we long to build a legacy for ourselves, if we long to build a church that outlasts us and all the future generations, it can't be built on us. It can't be built on our desires. It can't be built on what we think we can bring to the table. It must be built on the single-minded pursuit of God's word and his truth. Because if we don't single-mindedly pursue God's word, we'll pursue ourselves, we'll pursue evil, and we will pursue hypocrisy and deceit and slander. If we love God, we are living in a way that shows love to his people. And so we take all of those things and we base our lives, we build our community around this seed that never dies, that it is planted deep in the ground and it may not grow quickly. It may take time but it will never die. It is the word of God that persists on and on. And there's a story in Luke 24, as the disciples are leaving Jerusalem, Jesus has just died. They're walking home. It's Sunday afternoon. They're in tears. And Jesus finds them and starts to walk with them. And he says, what are you talking about, friends? And he says, well, um, where have you been? Because the one that we thought was the Messiah is gone. And he said, well, that can't be right. Have you read the scriptures? Have you seen the word of God? This is all true in here. Why don't you open your eyes and see the truth? Let me, let me just tell you a little bit about that. And Jesus begins to talk with them. They don't recognize that it's Jesus, but he begins to walk with them and tell them that the word of God has come from Moses and the prophets and been held here at this time so that Jesus could reveal all these things to be true. And they're like, well, that's super great. But then realize what happens after this. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. 
so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those who were with them assembled together saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. You see, we recognize Jesus by his scars. We recognize Jesus by the truth that he has come to proclaim. We recognize the true light and the word of God as those scriptures are illuminated and opened to us. 